The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think and feel and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights from the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. And once again, this week is no exception because I've got two fantastic guests to share with you. And they're both guys, guys, and they're both writers, and they're both in the kind of mystery crime thriller area. The first guest, our leadoff, is Mark Rubenstein. He's written a new book called The Assassin's Lullaby. And it's all about an ex-Massad, which is the Israeli intelligence sector, about an ex-Massad operative who finds himself working independently in New York and caught between two rival Russian Odessa mob bosses. And it's a thrilling book, and it's fast-paced, and it's a fun read, too. You know, I don't do a lot of fiction on the show because it, I, I want to do the best job for my guests, and it would require me with fiction to read the entire book. And I, I don't have, sometimes I don't have time to read every single book cover to cover. When it's a story, you have to really stick with it and make the time for it. And, you know, time is time. So anyhow, I do like to include some writers, though, because I think it's important. And, and within storytelling, there is a power there where there's a lot of information that's embedded in the stories that's shared by the authors with us. And in this case, Mark really gets into the nitty gritty about what happens with the Russian mob, in this case, the Odessa, who's located in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, and also how an ex-Massad operative operates. And once again, the Mossad is the top shelf Israeli intelligence unit, and they do an incredible job. They're well, world renowned. So the story's very good. I sat down and started reading the book to get ready for the interview. I read about 50 pages, and I'm like, wow, I'm digging this. And so I kept going, and I just powered through the book over the weekend. I really loved it. So I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. And, you know, Mark's also written about all types of nonfiction things also, whether it's cosmetic surgery, breast cancer, child rearing, all kinds of stuff. He's a brilliant guy, and I think you're going to have a, a lot of fun listening to our conversation. We've also got Michael Benson. He was a co-author of a couple of famous books, Mafia Hitman and Carmine the Snake. So obviously he's, a, he's well-versed in the, in the behavior of the mob. And in this case, he's written a new book called Gangsters vs. Nazis, How Jewish Mobsters Battled Nazis in Wartime America. And that's the lead up to World War II, where there was a lot of, uh, before the U.S. had joined the fight against Hitler and the Axis powers, there was a lot of uh, sympathy propaganda going on within America by the Nazis to gain favor, uh, empathy, and sympathy for their cause here because the U.S. did not join the fight until we were bombed uh, by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. And it's an amazing story because kind of like under the radar, some of these gangsters were contacted to see if they could kind of bust up some of these Nazi quote-unquote Nazi rallies that were taking place in the big cities in the United States and also where there was a lot of German-American immigrants here. And it's a fascinating, and it's all based on true stories. And so we're going to get into that with Michael Benson also. So I think you're really going to enjoy the show today. I wonder what's going on for you now. 
out there because we're now heading into fall. It's September. I, I really love this time of year because if you like to go to the beach like I do, you don't have as many uh, the tourists. It's more of a local scene. It's a little laid back. The water's usually very warm now. It's clean. And you still, there's plenty of light. It stays, you know, it stays light till after seven still for a while longer. You lose about a minute of sunlight every day, but it's much more chill. And uh, I just, I just love it. So out here in Southern California, we do have a change in seasons. You know, you don't think about it because when you're back East, bang, September 1st, everybody, everybody goes back to the city or Northern New Jersey or wherever they're from and you grind. And here it's like that. Of course, everybody's going back to school and all of that, but still, the beaches keep rocking, I'd say, eight months at least out of the year. And if you've got your wetsuit, no matter if it's a short one or a long one or whatever, and you surf or do a lot of water sports, which is so prevalent out here, then it's 12 months a year, uh, this coastal living. And I- I'm, I'm loving it. I take my son. We go to the beach late in the day, every day, and or early in the morning, and it's just fantastic. So I hope you're making the most on what a lot of people consider the most beautiful month of the year, which is September. So, Guys Guys Radio, my special guests once again are the terrific writers Mark Rubenstein and Michael Benson. I think you're really going to dig it, so let's get started right now. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, today we're going to talk about mystery and the Mossad and novels and how to do the work and all kinds of stuff that has to do with writing a best-selling thriller. My special guest is Mark Rubenstein. We're going to get into it right now on Guys Guys Radio. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark. He's a novelist. He's a physician, a psychiatrist. He's written eight nonfiction books, including The Storytellers, which is about other mystery writers, mystery thriller writers, and he's uh, gleaned a lot of information from them. He's also wrote the Mad Dog Trilogy and Lover's Tango. He lives in Wilton, Connecticut, and he also has a lot of nonfiction books about things like cosmetic surgery and raising kids and breast cancer. And he's just an amazing guy. So I'm really thrilled that uh, that Mark is on the show with us today. So welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Mark Rubenstein. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. Let's start right at the beginning. The book we're going to talk about today is the new one. It's called Assassin's Lullaby. I read it, as I mentioned to Mark, off camera over the weekend. It's really terrific, and it's about a an ex-Massad agent who's put into a kind of precarious position where he's asked to kind of take out two different warlords, if you will, in the Odessa crime families in uh, Brooklyn. And it's an amazing story, and he really can relate to the main character. His name is Eli. And it's just an incredible job you've done on the book. So what inspired your, cata- your character, Eli Dagan? He's a former Mossad operative. And how did you research him in the Mossad? Well, Eli Dagan is a, uh, an interesting guy. Uh, he's really more a product of fantasy than anything else. I once knew an Israeli guy who had some peripheral connection to the Mossad and learned a little bit about it. I also have to confess that to some significant extent, reading about Gabriel Alon uh, in in the best-selling series influenced me, and I thought it was just a very rich area that I could plumb the depths of fiction with. Mm -hmm. Now, how did your personal story, let's get into that a little bit, and then we'll get into the book. 
you know, you were a physician, a psychiatrist, you've written these nonfiction books for everything from cosmetic surgery to raising kids and emotional well-being to breast cancer. How did you kind of, where did it start and how did you kind of go on this journey and end up being such a popular fiction writer, a best-selling author? Well, it began with nonfiction when I was approached by a fellow physician who happened to have been a surgeon. And he asked me if I would, he knew I could write and liked to write, enjoyed doing it. So he asked if I would uh, help him uh, develop a book on cosmetic facial surgery and then another one on uh, breast cancer and uh, various surgeries. So I did that. We were lucky enough to land an agent and uh, the book sold. And then I wrote a bunch of other books with other physicians. So it began with my writing what I called OPMs, uh, OPBs, other people's books, um, where I was the writer and also contributed to some extent because I was, uh, of course, a psychiatrist. Um, and from there, I just branched out and started writing fiction. And uh, I, I guess. Being a psychiatrist where I would hear other people's stories was a, an impetus uh, for me to start thinking about my own story and stories that uh, I could make up that might be interesting for readers. So it began, by the way, as a psychiatrist, uh, as a psychiatrist in training, I had to uh, uh, participate in various seminars and case history seminars. So we had to read about various uh, patients we were treating. And in so doing, I would even insert dialogue from the patients, and people told me that my case histories read and sounded like fiction. So I got started in a, in a strange way. I got started that way. And one thing just segued into another, and I wrote the Mad Dog trilogy, and it got uh, received very well, eventually got an agent, and um, from there, it's all history. Now, what is the Mad Dog Trilogy all about for those who are not familiar with your work, Mark? It's about a surgeon named Roddy Dolan, who's a general surgeon, and his best friend, uh, uh, Danny Burns, who's an accountant. They're childhood friends, having both grown up in very disadvantaged circumstances. And Roddy uh, is approached by an old, old friend from their childhood, a guy named Kenny Egan, who has a... Uh, an opportunity for uh, both Roddy and Danny to invest as silent partners in a restaurant. And uh, therein the trouble begins because the restaurant happens to uh, uh, be immersed in some mafia-type activities. And without giving away any spoilers, one thing leads to another. And what we have are two everyman guys fighting for the uh, fighting to survive uh, what becomes a threat to their lives and to their families uh, by dint of uh, their having made this rather uh, risky investment. And it's a trilogy in that uh, the first one is called Mad Dog House, the second book is called Mad Dog Justice, and the third is called Mad Dog Vengeance. So each, each one of the three uh, books circles around a different element of the original investment, which uh, creates more and more dilemmas for these three guys. But after the third book, I figured I had to drop it because these guys are not lawyers or police officers who are going to have different cases coming across their right. transom every, uh, every few weeks or days. So um, it became a trilogy. And um, 
Uh, it's being considered uh, in some quarters for uh, being turned into either a TV uh, movie or series. Now, how did you get the idea of setting the backdrop for that series? And then I want to get on to the new book, but did you know the restaurant business uh, and how it works and how the loans work in that and how sometimes people take money from nefarious resources? Well, there's where I had to do a good deal of research, which began when I was about 14 years old. I was with my parents in a very well-known steakhouse in Manhattan. We just, uh, my mother, father, and me, and the owner happened to be someone my father knew, and he sat down at our table and he complained. He said, being in the restaurant business means I have 40 paid enemies, referring, of course, to his employees, who would steal from him in every which way they could, whether it was a line chef or a guy who was stealing steak or the bartenders who were not ringing up uh, drinks. And But there I had to do a great deal of research into the restaurant business and the various scams that are involved in that business. And one thing, it, it's amazing how when you begin doing research, one thing leads to another. The next thing you know, you have a very rich tableau from which to choose in terms of, in this specific case, uh, how to, how to uh, make the restaurant business seem very eerie and filled with risk. Yeah, amazing. Well, great job. Congrats on that. Okay, the new book, and my special guest once again is Mark Rubenstein. We're talking about his latest book. It's called Assassin's Lullaby. And as I mentioned, it's about an ex-Massad agent who's put into a precarious situation where he's kind of hired to wipe out two guys who are trying to get each other. And he's he breaks a lot of his own rules. Tell us a little bit about your research for that. Do you, were you familiar with the Russian mob in Brooklyn? Are you familiar with the Mossad? I have to say that your descriptions as a New Yorker, even though I live in Southern California now, I knew every single inch that you covered in, in New York and in Brooklyn, and you did an amazing job of capturing the fabric and the feeling and the emotions that come with the city, particularly at this time of year, February, which is really a cold spell in New York City. But back to my question, which is, how did you do the research for the Mossad and for the Brooklyn-based Brighton Beach Odessa Mafia? Well, the Odessa Mafia is otherwise known as the Bratva, B-R-A-T-V-A, which in Russian means brotherhood, the brotherhood. And having grown up in Brooklyn myself, I had some familiarity with it, but not nearly the level sufficient to have written this book. So, you know, the Internet is a wonderful tool uh, right. if, if you can use it without getting sucked in endlessly into one thing leading to another. So I did a great deal of research about the, uh, the Bratva, the Odessa Mafia, and about the Pakans. The Pakan is the... Uh, the equivalent of a mob boss or a don in the Italian mafia. It's amazing, by the way, how every ethnic group either has or has had its own mafia-style uh, uh, criminal enterprise. Uh, doesn't matter what group right. of immigrants you ever go to, they, yeah. they all have them or had them. Um, so I learned about the Odessa mafia uh, by virtue of uh, the internet. The Mossad, there are books, and uh, there's one particular author named Ronan Bergman who wrote a book about the Mossad, which was very revealing, uh, apparently without revealing state secrets, but the Mossad is a fascinating uh, uh, enterprise, if you can call it that. Uh, they are, along with the CIA, they are probably the premier uh, 
spy and undercover agency in the world. Uh, they operate everywhere. And I learned a great deal about them. And in reading the book, I think the reader learns, uh, along with what I learned, a great deal about the Mossad and how they operate and how they uh, can be as effective as they are throughout the world. Eli, Eli Dagan, uh, who was with the Mossad, um, finally couldn't take it anymore because it was just too replete with tragedy and memories of what happened to him as a, uh, as a young man, what happened to his family, I should say. So uh, he ended up uh, leaving Israel and coming to New York, where he uh, rationalized his activities by saying he'd be a hitman and be involved in taking out evil people and that's what he did and that's what he does and that's where we begin the story in assassin's lullaby where he's contacted by two opposing pecans each one wanting to take the other out each one of course not knowing that the other one has hired eli to do what he's hiring eli to do to the other guy so uh it begins with a bit of a conundrum and from there, things go from bad to worse. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because they, they, both of these bosses realize that they play it out in their mind and they say, okay, the other guys hired this guy also to take me out. I better get to him first. So you have a clock going and you have the assassin in the middle and you're trying to guess, okay, what is he going to do? Because you, you know that eventually he's going to be disposable too. So it's a, it's really interesting. And you did a great job as a psychiatrist. I could, you know, there was a lot of uh, showing, of course, and you get into the mindset of the main character. So mm -hmm. I want to ask you about Eli. He breaks a lot of his rules by meeting mm -hmm. uh, clients in person. He actually kind of has feelings for a woman and it all goes wrong when he breaks his rules. So why does he break his rules? I think he breaks his, I'm talking about him as though he's the real person, and uh, I think this about him, or I think yeah, that, which is your character. strange. Yeah, no, yeah it's strange about fiction. <laughs> you, you can get lost in the interstices of the character. I know I got lost in, in Eli. Uh, how much of Eli is me, and how much of uh, me is Eli is impossible for me to delineate. But I think Eli was getting very tired of his life as a uh, as a contract killer, as a hitman, and I think he was looking for a way out. And uh, to put it simply, I think he was getting careless. Um, he's 39 years old. He feels his age is catching up with him. He knows he can never maintain the level of um, uh, finely tuned wariness that he's kept up until now. You gotta remember he's been in the Mossad for 10 years he's been a contract killer for 10 years so that's 20 years beginning when he was uh 20 and uh stiff felt to keep up that level of uh intense scrutiny about yourself and about the world around you um also given the tragedies that occurred to his family he doesn't realize it but he really is hungry for someone to love and this becomes part of the mix. And uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but um, uh, again, it gets very complicated for him. Uh, although I think I try never to complicate things to the point where the reader doesn't know what's going on. No, you did a great job there. There is psychological factors there. And as a from your background, obviously, you delve into that, into the 
character uh, kind of the analysis of his actions and his thoughts and feelings along the way so great job there and once what's again what's also interesting robert is that i uh at least it, it is to me is that each of these two warlords as you very appropriately put it uh one is named um uh oh god it's, uh, i've forgotten their names already one is one is named a anton uh, gorlov uh, anton gorlov and the other is named uh uh agapov ivan right. agapov each of them has an understandable reason for being the vile villain that he right. is. And the reader, I think, develops a certain level of sympathy for either one of the, especially for Mr. Gorlov. Uh, you understand why he's become who he is and what he is. And uh, one of the rules, at least for me, in writing thrillers, there are a couple of them. One is to always have a clock ticking. Uh, and another one is to not make any character especially a villain uh a cardboard character to give even a villain a real uh sense of humanity so that the reader doesn't just write him off and be glad to see him go uh if that's in fact what's going to happen you did a great job with that my special guest on guys guys radio mark rubenstein i found this fascinating and I, again as i was talking to you before we got on the show, I picked up the book. I said, I'll read the first 50 pages. And I was like, I got it. I love this. I just kept going because I wanted to know what's going to happen with this guy, even though I had some things in the back of my mind. Well, this could go this way. This could go that way. But pleasant surprises in that I was surprised along the way. And uh, great job. And the thing I really loved about the book, because I'm an, I'm a New Yorker, I lived there for 30 years, and you got into details and descriptions that only a New Yorker could could nail, which oh, is sure. when you get in the back of an old cab and like your butt it sinks into where so many other butts have been, and there's a crack in the in the leather there, and there's scotch tape or something over it. You're like, you just nailed duct tape, what duct tape, duct and it's not leather, it's vinyl. It's vinyl. The seat is vinyl, there's a crack. And there's a depression where a thousand asses have been before yours. <laughs> Just amazing. You did a great job with that. I can relate to all of it and all the different areas uh, around Gramercy Park where the character kind of lives and hangs out. You and really Grand Central, a Grand Central Terminal, that, absolutely. Uh, uh, which is a world unto itself. It really this is, is. true. This is true. Well, you did a great job, and I look forward to the next one. And maybe we'll have you back to talk about cosmetic surgery, one of your nonfiction books, if that's something of interest to you. Mark. Sure, sure. Okay, so the, again, the name of the book is Assassin's Lullaby, Mark Rubenstein. I recommend it highly. It's a fun, fast read. I think you'll really enjoy it, particularly if you like the mystery thriller type of the action series. This is a real good one, and I've, I've been uh, pitched a lot of them, and I rarely take on uh, writers of fiction because it's just too much of my time is in, involved to do a good job. But this one I did. I'm glad I did. You do great work, Mark. So tell everybody where they can find out more about you and your work. Well, the book will be in various bookstores, uh, but you know these days with Amazon, uh, that tends to be the easiest uh, mode of access for virtually anything, including, of course, books, which is the way Amazon began. Um, it's it's available on Amazon uh, either as a Kindle. Uh, it's also available on site uh, on Kobo on uh, Books a Million. It's it's available on every platform. Right. Um, and and um what else any bookstore if it's not on the shelf in a bookstore they can get it for you in a matter of a day or two fantastic well great job excellent work here assassin's lullaby mark rubenstein check out his work he's terrific good job mark pleasure to meet you i hope we can do it again thank you so much robert 
It's Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Okay, Guy's Guy's Radio. We've got a wonderful guest today. His name is Michael Benson. He's one of the world's most popular true crime writers. His books including Nightmare in Rochester, Betrayal and Blood, Killer Twins, The Devil of Genesee, Junction, Tell of Heinous Criminals their victims, and the lawmen who bring them to justice. He's recently been seen on ABC's 2020. He's a regular commentator on the Investigation Discovery ID, Oxygen, HLN channels. He's appeared on Murder in the Family with Geraldo, Inside Evil with Chris Cromo, People Magazine, Investigates Evil Twins, etc. During his decades as a professional writer, Michael has worked with former gangsters or biographies on Mafia Don's Carmine, Persico and Albert Anastasia. He's worked with a retired army intelligence agent doing the tense days after 9-11 for a book about the CIA. He's also worked with a retired FBI agent for a book about national security. So he really digs in and gets the real info that we want to share with you. He's co-written two books with former NYPD Department Cop of the Year, explored the grassy knoll in Dallas with a former KGB agent while researching his highly acclaimed who's who in the JFK assassination. He's collaborated with an astronaut and covered the Stephen Haynes triple murder in New Haven, Connecticut for the New York Post. His latest book that we're going to focus on today is called Gangsters versus Nazis, How Jewish Mobsters Battled Nazis in Wartime America. It's a story that that needs to be brought to film, and I'm surprised it hasn't, but uh, it's something that nobody ever talks about. But it's a really fascinating story about how the gangsters, the Jewish gangsters, and also some of the traditional mafia went after some of the uh, kind of Nazi groups uh, springing up prior to World War II in America. So long story short, welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Michael Benson. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. I mean, you have a very varied background as a writer and you get you dig a lot into the uh, true crime area. How did you get started as a writer? Is this what you wanted to do? And how did you kind of hone in on this genre? Well, when I, I was volunteered when i was nine years old my babysitter and her friend were brutally murdered by a psycho killer uh, i lived out in the country uh they were killed in my back field uh then they weren't found for a month uh they'd been horribly butchered deck deck the ripper type crime uh never stopped kind of messed up my childhood uh i started writing about it when i was 11 two years later and 43 43 years later it became the devil at genesee junction I went back in 2011 to my hometown, teamed up with a private investigator and the mom of one of the victims, and we solved the crime. Wow, that is amazing. How did you solve the crime? Well, we, what happened was the sheriff's department only talked to the adults in the neighborhood. They didn't talk to the kids. And I went on the air in Rochester in 2011. Pardon me. It's my phone. Um, and said, if anybody knows anything, please get in touch. And what happened was we got a series of women in their 50s who said, when I was nine, these brothers dragged me back in the woods, had their way with me, and told me I was dead meat if I told anybody. Uh, and this resembles the, the crime that, that happened, uh, with the exception of the murders themselves. Uh, and we, uh, we, we honed in on those brothers. And found out, yeah, one of them was a uh, was married to a victim's cousin and lived uh, two doors away from the other victim, and they were in and out of these girls' houses 
and they were creepy. So I put, for some reason, that escaped the law enforcement in, in 1966 because uh, they didn't think the kids knew anything. Wow. And then were these, uh, these criminals, were they put away then? Oh, yeah. They're, they were dead by the time my investigation started. Okay. Uh, the guy who I believe committed the murders uh, was killed in prison in Texas about two weeks after going in for 70 years for incest. Wow. Well, good job. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you for your service. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really big deal. So what's the name of the book that focuses on that? That's The Devil at Genesee Junction. Okay. That's uh, the, the area where I grew up. All right. Was that your first book? It was not. I, I knew, I was smart enough to know that I didn't know how to do a, an investigation. So I wrote a couple of true crime books first before I went after the big one. Uh, I, I did the, the, the BTK case as a ghostwriter, and then I did a series of uh, mass market paperbacks for Kensington on various crimes, including one up in the Rochester area where I grew up. And by that time, I knew that I was ready. And I put my ducks in a row and started investigating uh, George Ann and Kathy's murders when I was nine. Wow. Well, let's talk about this new book here, Gangsters versus yes. Nazis. This is how Jewish mobsters battle Nazis in wartime in America. And it's an amazing story because it's something that happened that you would think people would be talking about or have talked about. But I've never heard about this. And it's very interesting and it makes perfect sense. So how did the idea, the concept come to you, Michael? Parts of the story I knew already. Uh, I, I knew about Jack Ruby's involvement because of my work with the Kennedy assassination. Um, and I had written a couple of uh, mob books. So I knew the cast of characters involved. My agent, Doug Rad of Doug Rad Literary Agency, uh, he told me on the, the third fairway of uh, golf course while we were having a meeting um, that he'd read an article about this, that the judge Nathan Perlman, a New York City judge, had gone to Meyer Lansky, the all-time greatest Jewish gangster, and had asked for help uh, getting the, uh, the German-American Bund and the Silver Lodge, the two predominant Nazi groups in America in 1938, to, to shut up. I mean, it wasn't a, you know, the war hadn't happened yet, but these guys were going around, they were, and they were, they were brazen in, in their uh, behavior. They were, you know, Jews, Jews are a cancer. They need to be cut out of society, saying all this horrible stuff. And because there were no hate laws at the time, uh, there was no way to stop them. As long as they didn't say anything obscene or shout fire in a crowded room, they could talk about hating Jews and how Jews should be uh, eliminated as much as they wanted. Nobody could do anything about it. But Judge Perlman was particularly offended by this one day when he was at a, uh, a patriotic uh, ceremony in the Bowling Green section of Manhattan, and it was interrupted by the German-American Bund creep marching and carrying signs and chanting about hating Jews and loving Hitler, sig-heiling and goose-stepping. And he, Judge Perlman, had a couple of cocktails and fought outside the box, and he gave a call to Meyer Lansky and said, uh, can you teach these guys a lesson and let them know that if they're going to go on saying these things, they're going to have problems. And Lansky said, sure. Uh, but Judge, I, I'll tell you the truth, we can do better than just Slap them around. We, you know, we could take care of them if you want. And the judge said, "No, no, no, no. If you start killing these guys, we're going to lose the moral high ground, and it's all going to end right away. You just have to beat them up. You got to mess them up." So Lansky put together a team of, of fighters made up of murdering the Jewish members of murdering, who 
whose only job was to, to kill people that were on the hit list of the commissioners of the five family. Uh, gave him a couple of boxing lessons, gave him some brass knuckles and thought off pool cues. And the next time the uh, German-American Bund had a big rally in Manhattan at the, uh, the Yorkville Casino on East 86th Street, gangsters went in there and started punching them in the nose. And I think the closest they came to killing somebody uh, was when Lansky and another fellow dropped one of the Nazis out of a second-story window. If he'd landed on his head, that would have been it for no killing. But he landed on his legs, you know, accordion to one leg, and uh, that, was, that was the worst injury they had. But it got Mayor LaGuardia's attention, and LaGuardia kicked the Nazis out of Manhattan, uh, at which point the, the battle against them moved to Newark, and then to Chicago and to Minneapolis and Los Angeles, other major cities, where Judge Perlman knew top gangsters, probably because of relationships during prohibition, not necessarily through the justice system. So what you have is a story where the good guys are breaking all the law, and the bad guys, the villains, are breaking no law. Uh, it's the, the twilight zone between what is legal and what is just. How did uh, the police uh, get their instructions to kind of allow this to happen? Because I'm sure they must have been in on this. But was this through the judge, through the police commissioner, or how did they do that? The judge, yeah, the judge made some phone calls. <clears throat> and the, the police usually showed up just in time to no, do no good whatsoever, kind of pick up the piece. And one of the smart things that Lansky did was he brought with him to the first riot in Yorkville a box of American Legion hats, brand new crisp American Legion hats. And he told his boys to put them on and then on their way out after the fight, lose the hat. And sure enough, 48 hours later, the New York Times is saying, well, the NYPD believes that it was American Legion guys who were, had fought the Germans during World War I and didn't like the idea that they were becoming aggressive again, when in reality it was gangsters. And Lansky got that uh, idea from Albert Anastasia, who used to put Chicago-made hats on his hit teams, and then they'd lose the hats on the way out. And the NYPD, instead of looking in Brooklyn where the killers were, would say to the press, well, we think that they brought them in from Chicago. What was the genesis of the fascism that had been growing so much coming out of, I guess, World War I and then the Depression and the need to uh, point a finger at somebody to make a, you know, to demonize a group? And it turned out to be the Jews here. And at the same time, the U.S. had stayed out of World War II and Hitler was really stomping on all over Europe. And Japan was in the act, as was Italy and Northern. Africa and Japan, I guess, in, the, in Asia. What was going on there? What, why was the rise of fascism um, so prominent here in the States and the U.S. kind of staying out of things, in your opinion, from doing your research? Well, I think those are two separate questions. The, I think that anti-Semitism was a direct rea reaction to nine years of depression. Uh, scapegoating a group was really easy under those circumstances because people felt like they didn't have any money hadn't had any money in a long time. Nobody had any money. So it was very easy for these guys to say, the Jews have all the money. That's why you don't have any. And because and they have all the money because they're communists, which makes no sense whatsoever if you think about it intellectually. But these people didn't. They, ah, you know, Jews are bad. The, uh, the question about why we hadn't gotten involved in, uh, in the war 
is, is basically because Gentiles didn't think we had a dog in the fight. It's hard to, hard to fathom now, but until the, the mass exposure of the, of the, uh, the Holocaust, the whole notion that there was genocide going on in Europe was something that Jewish people knew because they were getting letters from their relatives in Europe, but Gentiles never really latched on to uh, until the proof was in their faith. And even then, Life magazine published the first photos of the release of the, the concentration camp uh, with all of those horrible pictures of, of the skeleton people uh, without mentioning that all of the victims were Jewish. They just said these are, you know, the horrible German camp, and they made it seem like a, an act of patriotism to, to release them rather than the, the emphasizing the fact that these were all Jewish people. And Hitler's goal was to wipe Jewish people off the face of the earth. Okay. So the U.S. stayed out of the war, and then Japan bombs Pearl Harbor. And uh, from yes. my reading your book, it seemed like you know the last thing that Hitler wanted was the U.S. to get involved because he was doing pretty good without us getting in there and knew that we would turn the tide. So what do you think precipitated the uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor by Japan? Was that something they did on their own? Oh, I, I, I think so. I think Japan's own notion of world conquest was largely separate. I mean, we, we think of them as the Axis powers, but uh, you know, Japan and, and, and Germany didn't, didn't turn into cahoots in a lot of different ways. You know, we, we had the Atlantic and we had the Pacific, and they were separate wars. Um, it happened at the same time. Uh, and I, I'm sure that Hitler was ticked off at the bombing of Pearl Harbor because the last thing he wanted was to go to war with America because we were a sleeping giant. He, he wanted nothing more than to take over Hollywood so, so that instead of making pro-democracy movies, Hollywood would make pro-fascist movies, win the hearts and minds of America, and he'd be able to, to take care of that hemisphere without firing a shot. Didn't work because his plans were, well, it, yeah, they weren't well made. Right. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he, he put in a, a force in, in California without making one strong leader. And a Jewish group infiltrated them, uh, got them all backstabbing each other figuratively, and it, it fell apart. But their plans were to kidnap the Jewish uh, moguls of the, the studios, to kidnap the top Jewish uh, stars, and to publicly execute them. Which, again, shows that Hitler doesn't understand the hearts and minds of America, right. because that would not have won over our hearts. To, to, to If Charlie Chaplin hung in... Uh, and Sunset Boulevard would not have uh, would not have helped anything. Okay, guys, guys, radio. My special guest is Michael Benson. We're talking about his new book, Gangsters versus Nazis: How Jewish Mobsters Battled Nazi not Nazis in Wartime America. So we had a stronghold of uh, Germans and Jews in New York, but in other areas of the country, we had uh, similar factions, dual factions going on. In the Midwest, Minnesota had a lot of Jewish people. Uh, I didn't realize that. And I know Chicago and a lot of the Great Lakes cities have a lot of Germans. So how did that all come together with the with the movements spreading uh, together? Or were these things cropping up on their own separately? Well, Fritz, Fritz Kuhn, uh, who was the leader of the German-American Bund, he had outposts in all of the major cities where there were large German communities. Uh, and it, in those in which there were also large Jewish communities, that's where the, the fight took. Um, 
So, I mean, there were, there were also a lot of German-American Nazis in Texas, but gangsters didn't punch anybody in the nose down there because they would have all been shot. But in, in Minnesota, you could get away with it. And, uh, and because it, it was a, a war over speech and not a war over killing, it wasn't like World War II. Uh, it, it, it played by playground rules. Almost. I mean, nobody even pulled a knife. You know, they, they were fist fights, and the, and the Jewish men won every single time. Um, I, I think that the anti the one that shocked me the most was was Minneapolis St. Paul, where there was a list of Nazi sympathizers that was really long, and there the the number one guy uh, the number one group was the Silver Lodge. Uh, Different from the German American bunch. Just as fascist, not quite as German. There's some Scandinavian too. Okay. And uh, these guys were, were really, really anti Semitic. And Davy uh, Davy Berman in, in uh, Minneapolis, he led the, the fight against them. And it wasn't as violent. I mean, there, there were not heads getting busted as much. A lot of the meetings there were in private houses. And what the gangsters would do is they'd pelt the house with rotten vegetables. On that one time the host of the, the meeting came out in his tuxedo and they grabbed him and they threw him in a pond. So when he went back to the meeting, he was soaking wet. So it was that kind of some, somewhat harmless humiliations going on rather than in New York and L.A. where skulls were getting cracked. It sounds like uh, the also the traditional mob was involved because there was a relationship between Meyer, Lansky, and Lucky Luciano. So was there some type of, uh, you know, handshake agreement on how to handle this, even though, you know, the Italians in Italy were invading North Africa and were considered an Axis power? How did that dynamic work out? Well, first of all, yeah, the the fascists in Italy and the mafia, the actual Al Mafia, uh, they were were enemies. They were competing governments. And Luciano couldn't be more mafia. And he grew up on the same block with Lansky. And uh, when Lansky told him about Judge Perlman's request, Luciano says, you want the Italian guys too? Well, you know, we can bust them Nazi heads. What the heck? And uh, Lansky said, no, this is, this is, we're doing this for our Jewish brothers in Europe. We're suffering now. Uh, Perlman offered to pay them. They said, no, we will take no money. It's our patriotic duty to do this. In fact, across the country, Mickey Cohen, Bugsy Siegel in L.A. refused to take money. Nope, nope. Just because we're hoods don't mean we ain't no patriots. Got it. Um, okay. And, the war, uh, so what yeah. happened when the war started then, Michael, with all these groups? There was a lot of, you know, uh, again, in New York and some of the major cities, a lot of beatdowns of the trying to keep the bun groups down. So the war starts. What happens now? Do those groups go underground? And what happened after the war also? Well, the, uh, the war pretty much reset. Uh, like it's like at the end of a, a sitcom. Uh, it, the Pearl Harbor changes everything. The leaders of the German group who were hiding behind the First Amendment are now committing sedition. So they're breaking the law. Their followers are being drafted and being sent to the Pacific where their allegiances won't be questioned. The Jewish fighters are also being drafted. They're being sent to Europe. In fact, Nat Arno who fought against Nazis in the streets of Newark, New Jersey, says that twice, while between Normandy and Berlin, which, which he, he 
walked on foot uh, during Europe the hard way. He says twice he ran into POWs being marched in the other direction that he recognized from streets like he knew it. Um, the, so yeah, everybody's role changes. And the, the fights of 1938-39 are, are forgotten. But I think the one that sticks in, in, in our history the most is the big garden party where the, the Nazis, the German-American Bund, had its last-ditch attempt, and they filled Madison Square Garden in New York with a pro-America event, which was actually a pro-German event. And they, they had security, a New York cop guarding the doors to make sure that there wasn't a riot. And the entire garden at that time was up on 58th Street. It was uh, surrounded by protesting groups. We don't even know if the gangsters were there. They were probably there, but they were lost in the crowd if they were. And one, one man, Izzy Greenbaum, an unemployed plumber, sneaks into Madison Square Garden, runs up on the stage during Chris Coon's speech, pulls the plug on his microphone, shouts something into the crowd, which you can't repeat here, and is tackled by security, and they pull down his pants. It's a big laugh from the Nazi crowd. And then he is rescued by New York police, spends the night in jail, and the next morning, he's in court, and the courtroom was filled with rich Jewish men saying, I want to pay his bail, I want to pay his bail, I want to pay his bail. And this big German uh, rally, which was supposed to get headlines all over the uh, the country, instead, Izzy stole the Okay. My special guest on Guys Guys Radio, Michael Benson, co-author of Mafia Hitman and Carmine the Snake, other books about gangsters. And this one's called Gangsters versus Nazis, How Jewish Mobsters Battle Nazis in Wartime America. Last question for you, Michael. Looking at today, do you see any similarities as to what's going on with some of these Aryan groups that are cropping up or coming out from out from under the rocks, if you will? and being brought more into the uh, surface again as they were back in the 30s. And oh, 40s. I absolutely see a connection. I, uh, there was a story on New York News this morning that somebody was passing leaflets in Rockville Center, Long Island, saying that the Jews are behind all of our problems. Oh, the Jews are behind COVID. That was it. The Jews are responsible <laughs> for COVID, so yeah, they need to be wiped out from society. It was very familiar, very similar to what they were saying in 1938, just different problems. Uh, and of course, everybody's up in arms about it. Um, I, I don't think you can get away with having fist fights anymore. I think there are too many guns. I think we, we resort to, to violence much quicker than we did in 1938 uh, as a society. Um, but I'm encouraged by one thing. There was a, uh, a, I think it was called Reawaken America, it was a group that was coming to Rochester, New York, again, where I grew up. And they were going to have an event in the Rochester Main Street Armory. Big, big arena and every other act that was booked to play there this summer says we're not showing up if you have them got it so rochester's yep. not going to be host to uh, to that event anymore and maybe that's just as good as a punch in the nose okay michael benson my special guest on guys guys radio nice job again the book gangsters versus nazis where can our listeners and viewers find out more about you michael real quick what's your website well yeah i uh i have uh a an amazon page i think at if you go in your search engine and you put at author michael benson all one word it takes you to uh my amazon.com page which has every book i've ever written and a little biography and stuff i i think author michael benson gets you to me on uh where did i write that down okay just use yeah, your yeah, name yeah, we'll yeah. Find I, I don't have my own website okay 
but uh, you can you can find me. I'm the one with the white beard. Okay. All right. Thanks for being on our show, and uh, best of luck for you. Keep writing. Thank you, Robin. Appreciate it. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Okay, I really enjoyed these conversations with two dynamic, very talented authors, both guys, guys, Mark Rubenstein and Michael Benson. Again, Mark Rubenstein has written a new book, Assassin's Lullaby. And as I said earlier, I picked up the book and started reading it over the weekend. And I read the first 50 pages and I was hooked and I blew through it. And it's a fun, fast read, but it's really good. It'll get you thinking. And, you know, it's interesting because Mark by trade. He's also a psychiatrist as well as a medical doctor, and he's written a lot of nonfiction books about various topics there. But he is a terrific novelist, and he really gets inside the heads of the uh, main characters. And you, as you're with them along their journey, if you will, facing the conflicts and challenges they have, you're asking yourselves, what would I do? Would I pick door A or B? Just like the characters are. And it's, it's a way of getting to really empathize and connect emotionally with the characters. And I think Mark does a terrific job with that as he gets into the kind of consciousness of the characters without making it telling. It's all about showing, and he does a great job, and I think you'll really enjoy this book. It's called Assassin's Lullaby. It's just dropping now. My other guest, of course, is Michael Benson. We talked about gangsters versus Nazis, how the Jewish gangsters got recruited to get in the way and block the efforts of the the Nazi rallies that were happening in America right before World War II. You know, the U.S. didn't get into the war until we got bombed at Pearl Harbor, and then we were all in. But before that, there was a movement in the United States uh, throughout many major cities that the Nazis were looking to uh, drum up support and empathy, etc., as I had mentioned. And this is uh, real stuff that happened, and it's interesting that the powers that be, the government officials kind of under the radar, were in touch and uh, kind of working with these these mobsters, if you will, these Jewish mobsters, to in an effort to kind of block the efforts of the Nazis and the Nazi movement in the United States. Fascinating stuff, and it's based on truth, so I think you'll enjoy that book also. So, Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening on KCAA Radio in Southern California at 8 p.m., 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 a.m., the podcast and my YouTube and Rumble post worldwide Thursdays. There is a rebroadcast of KCAA's show at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Sundays. So you can listen live, you can download, you can stream the KCAA show, you can listen to the podcast wherever you consume your podcasts, and you can watch the interviews on our YouTube or Rumble channel. It's up to you, however you consume your content. Uh, that's that's on that's your choice, but it's there for you. And I would ask you if you enjoy the content and the guests I bring you each and every week to the show, you could do one thing, and that would be subscribe to my podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast, and also my YouTube channel. That's really important. Just go to Robert Manny uh, on YouTube, M A N N I. You'll get to a page called Guys Guys TV. Just subscribe there, and then you can. Watch whatever you want, whenever you want. And there's a lot of content there for you also. Lots of other videos that we've done. I also have a website that's pretty popular. It's called robertmanni.com. And I've got over 300 blog posts there about 
pretty much every subject we've discussed with our guests. So it's life, love, the pursuit of happiness. 300 blog posts are all in. I take a deep dive in all of them, and I think you'll find them fun and informational. So we've got more content for you there. Again, all free. And I also offer three free chapters to my novel called The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, which is the source material for all things guy's guy. It's about two men in advertising in New York City competing for love, sex, power, and money. And there's got some savvy women characters. You've got some flawed male characters. You've got frenemies, enemies, rivals, a lot of sex, a lot of fast, frothy action. Takes place in the summer in New York and the surrounding areas, the Hamptons, the Jersey Shore. It's a, it's a blue sky type of story, but it's about something. It's a fast, fun, fun read. You can check out the reviews on Amazon. I think you'll agree that uh, people really dig the book. Women like it because it gives a sneak peek behind the curtain into the weird, odd world of modern men and their dating habits. And guys like it because it's like, finally, there's a book that says in this category that's not some sappy, typical rom-com, but this is really about how today's men roll. So I think you'll enjoy it. I think it's worth checking out. And again, you can download three free chapters. If you dig it, please buy the book. If it's not for you, that's cool. And thanks for checking it out anyhow. So we're here every week on Guys Guys Radio. Uh, I want to thank my special guests. As always, I've done other 650 interviews over the last couple of years. And wow, I've learned so much. I hope you have also. And we're learning at the same time. And that's cool. I do my very best to bone up to make these interviews fruitful for everyone. And I appreciate your support. So thank you. I also want to thank, as always, my wonderful producer, Chris, does an amazing job, always has my back. And most of all, I want to thank you, my growing audience, for being there with me along the journey and those who just kind of hopped on the Guys Guys train. And we're really going and it's growing. And we've got a lot more fantastic guests, a lot more great content and insights to share with you each and every week. So I'll see you next week. And until then, like I always like to say, Guys, guys, finish first.